0: A few weeks back, I scheduled a conversation with Abram Lustgarten, a reporter with ProPublica. I wanted to talk to him about his reporting on climate migration, when climate change forces people to move, how many leave their homes, and where they go. Through his reporting, Abram is deeply familiar with the topic, but his experience doesn't end there. He lives in the Bay Area of California, and the day before we were supposed to speak, he and his family had to flee the wildfires closing in on the city. We had to reschedule. When I finally got him on the phone, I wondered if his work on climate change affects the way he views the blazes in his state. Have you thought about moving? I mean, you're there in the middle of a wildfire. Have you thought about living elsewhere?
1: Yeah. You know, I have to confess, I think about it every day, and as we're sort of burning here uh, in the burning season every fall, that question becomes more and more important. You go back uh, you know to the beginning of time and you see that environment has driven the movement of populations so there's research connecting you know the earliest migrations out of Africa towards Europe to a drying trend and a drought in the south and progression along kind of a green belt that led people north the drought that ultimately decimated the Mayan civilization in Central America is another great example. And there's research that suggests that the Mayan people tried to adapt and migrate away, basically outrun the environmental change that was happening there, but failed. But the scale of what we are headed for is unlike anything that has ever happened in in the past.
0: Predicting human behavior is incredibly difficult and notoriously imprecise. But understanding how the changing climate might also change population density around the world is crucial. When populations move in large numbers within their countries, then across international borders, the effects of that movement can echo across the globe, from scarcity to political unrest to violence. Those consequences are tied to the number of people that will eventually have to move. So predicting the scale of climate migration has been a two-year obsession for Abram and his colleagues.
1: That really became kind of the holy grail for us was to see if there was any way to collect enough data about who lives where and how environmental conditions are changing to be able to create almost an artificial intelligence, uh, a model that could predict where, where they would begin to go.
0: The result of their work is a step towards that holy grail, and all they needed was a supercomputer and billions of data points. Today on the show, where will everyone go? Preparing for the largest migration of humans in centuries. I'm Celeste Headley, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next? TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us.
2: And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: When Abram started reporting on climate migration two years ago, he quickly ran into a problem. It was clear that the changing climate was already forcing some people to move, but there was little hard data about how many people would be forced to migrate in the years ahead and what part of the world they would come from. So we teamed up with Brian Jones, a geographer at Baruch College, in an effort to build a model that could predict how people would move across international borders.
1: The project was far more complex than I ever thought it could be. And it's built with models upon models upon models all nested together. And some of them start with things as basic as modeling or forecasting, you know, future rainfall or future crop yields for a certain area. And there seems to be a consensus I found through my reporting that those projections are increasingly accurate and increasingly trustworthy.
0: So you used a method called econometric modeling. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. What is that?
1: So econometric modeling is basically the application of statistics to project into the future. So if you can define a statistical relationship for the past or the present, and then you assume, for example, a linear progression of that relationship into the future, it gives you a sense of the relationship between two sets of facts uh, for years to come. So to, to oversimplify it, you know, if a certain number of people have been determined to move as a certain level of drought takes place, which is what happened in an early econometric modeling study of environmental change in Mexico, then you can project into the future that should the same drought happen in the same place over future periods of time, that the same ratio of people would move. And that's basically how economists also look at economic change in the United States and and globally.
0: You ended up having to use a supercomputer in Wyoming. (laughs) and and even that mm-hmm. supercomputer took 4 days to do the calculations
1: yeah so the modeling uh the, the model is immense the computing power to run it is immense and um we used a, a federal supercomputing facility in Wyoming and then eventually used additional academic facilities that Baruch College had access to in New York. We would ask a simple question, say, you know, if we if we tweaked the temperature range just a little bit or we decided to run a different combination of scenarios, what, you know, how many migrants would we get then? And it would become a multi-week long process of changing the programming, sending it off. It waits in line at the federal facility. It takes four days to run the modeling at the facility, then it comes back and then we interpret the data.
0: And the information, the results that you got were staggering. I I think it's fair to say that worldwide we're not prepared. How many people uh, does your model show will end up having to move?
1: So we took a slice of the world and looked as narrowly as possible at Central America coming to the U.S. because it was a relationship that we could understand and where I traveled and I did on the ground reporting and we could add anecdotal information and reporting to what the model told us. We found that about a million and a half people a year will eventually begin migrating towards the United States. Our modeling found that there will be approximately 30 million migrants over the next 30 years. For the United States that future migration will outpace uh, really the peak migration that we've ever experienced at intense periods in the past, but will do so for every year going forward. And globally, research is pointing to an astounding figure, which suggests that basically one in three people on the planet will live in a place that's not hospitable to humans the way it has been historically. That's to say that they'll either have to adapt where they are or they too will have to move.
0: You also quoted another study that showed that by 2100, even in many places, going outside for a few hours would result in death even for the fittest of humans, (laughs) the study said. So this may sound like a long ways away, 2100. But how urgent is this issue of, of climate that becomes basically inhospitable?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's urgent. It's happening now. I live in California and the state is burning And anybody who's lived through climate-driven natural disasters, the hurricanes of the last couple of years, would tell you something the same. And the same goes with heat. What you're describing is a different way of measuring heat about what's called wet bulb temperature, which is really this combination of heat and humidity, as well as some complex measures of things like the aspect of the sun and cloud cover to land. But what they all get at is a measure of you know what's a temperature where the human body can't cool itself down, which is really different from saying what's a temperature that's uncomfortable. And the data shows that heat and humidity combination will reach a level that makes it impossible for people to survive outside by later in the century in the most extreme parts of the planet, like parts of South Asia. But long before then, and including in parts of the U.S., and we'll see it you know happen through, say, the Mississippi River drainage, Intense levels of heat and humidity will begin to move northward that make it difficult, if not deadly to go outside, will make it difficult to, say, play school sports or to work outdoors. And that's a real fundamental shift in human health and in the way that we live on the planet. People will need to increasingly spend their time indoors where they will also you know, need to cool those indoor spaces, which will also use more energy, which contributes to this self-perpetuating cycle that we're finding ourselves in.
0: It's one thing to talk about climate migration in aggregate or, as Abram did with his model, attempt to predict how and where people will move in the future. But the climate is already changing. And that means individuals are already making tough decisions about whether they can support themselves and their families in the place where they currently live. All of them are data points in the model. But they're also human beings with personal stories and experiences that influence their choices.
1: I began the project with this curiosity to understand human decision making. My, my goal was to kind of dissect what people do in response to environmental change. And and I did much of this reporting in Guatemala and El Salvador and Mexico before we'd completed the models. So I didn't have data driving that reporting. But I assumed that people would have basically, you know, pros and cons columns in, in their mind, and they'd be weighing, you know, the various crop losses versus close to family or, you know, whatever the decision is for them, and then, you know, making a calculated decision about when to migrate. And I really wanted to understand how does one decide to migrate. Um, And what I found, you know, unfortunately, when I got down to say rural Guatemala and we went to a place that didn't have a strong uh, migration connection with the United States where where people didn't automatically think of migration as as the solution to their problems. I found hunger on a level that I just hadn't expected, and and I've reported all around the world, but I was still just shocked to see the depth of hardship that some of these families were facing, and the frustration that they described trying to grow food year after year and have some income. And What became really quickly apparent, contrary to what I would have hypothesized before going down there, is that the people that were migrating didn't have a choice.
0: Often, the first move for climate migrants isn't across international borders. It's from rural areas where food has become harder to grow into cities where the economic outlook seems more promising. This is the first step. As part of his reporting, Abram talked to a woman who had done just that.
1: This is a woman in, in uh, El Salvador who had uh, grown up in a rural area where her parents were, were farm laborers near the Guatemalan border. As farming became less and less viable, had moved to a a nearby city, then had been a victim of, of violence, gangs there murdered her husband. And when that happened, she sent her two daughters back to her parents so that she could move to San Salvador and try to make some money. In San Salvador, she gave birth to a baby that she was carrying and found herself just unable to, to make ends meet. And she had a job and she was in a better situation than most. But the, the practical costs of living and raising a child made her life an impossibility. And so she reached the point where um, she is now determined, she has not let, yet left for the United States, but she's determined to figure out a way to come at her earliest chance. And one of the biggest barriers that she faces is who will take care of her baby.
0: Why does the the movement into cities and away from rural areas make a
1: difference? As cities uh, or communities grow uh, either too large or too fast, and especially if they're under-resourced or underserved by infrastructure, parts of those cities become increasingly deeply impoverished. And that poverty is a pretty direct correlation with the sort of instability that it's in all of our interest to avoid. So the kind of instability that leads to more conflict, the rise of extremism, support for powerful groups, even terrorist groups uh, around the world. And for example, you know, research has found that climate change likely played a role in the civil war and conflict in Syria. And how that might have unfolded is that it was drought that drove people out of the Syrian countryside, which led to food scarcity and the difficulty in self-sustenance by farming. And so the populations of cities like Aleppo surged in response and people rapidly urbanized, seeking a different or more attractive economy. And it was through that urbanization and sort of the destabilization that can result that led to the amplification of dissent and, uh, you know, in extreme opposition parties and eventually led to conflict. And so that's an example of how it's climate change that might push the ball down the hill that eventually leads to a landslide of other factors that all have devastating impact.
0: And you also point out that one thing models can't track accurately or inaccurately are are the cultural tensions that might arise when you move everyone in the same place. I'm going to quote you here. You say, there's no data on anger or prejudice. How might we prepare for that kind of tension or strain or potential for violence?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's not really clear. I wrote that part and considered that, you know, that thought in the context of what I saw in Mexico, which is really sort of a transition space for Central American migrants trying to come to the United States. And what I found there is just a skyrocketing impatience with the various pressures that a large influx of people had and you know Mexicans typically, at least in the you know in the year that I was down there, are sympathetic to migrants' plight. But they found that there were strains on city infrastructure, on things like toilets and bathrooms, and food supplies and medical services, um, and these all lead to rising resentment. Just as sort of too crowded a room as a result of rapid urbanization can lead to destabilization, this rising resentment on a national level can lead to a rise in nationalism, um, a desire to close borders, to lock people out.
0: When life in nearby cities becomes too inhospitable, that's often when people choose to move across international borders. Abram says we've already seen the ripple effects of mass climate migration in Europe.
1: From 2015 to 2020, Europe through the Arab Spring years and and the Syrian conflict saw about two million, roughly uh, two million migrants. And so globally, putting aside for a minute, the three billion figure of global population that might need to find a new place to live, climate migration studies range as high as estimating 300 million people globally will need to move in response to climate change. So either way, you know, really even at sort of the lowest end of the spectrum, we're talking about a move of people that is many tens of times greater than what has already proven so challenging for a lot of European countries over the last five to eight years.
0: You interestingly said that uh, coronavirus kind of gave us a test run for how good we are. And when I say we, I mean homo sapiens <laughs> at handling this kind of catastrophe and um, the consensus was not very good. We failed this test so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, why? Well, here's the analogy. I mean, coronavirus, uh, you know, is a pandemic that is well predicted uh, in all of its facets. Um, The, you know, the scientific community has understood both coronaviruses specifically and the risks of pandemic spreading uh, around the world for many, many years. We've defined the need to react to it uh, and defined the impacts, including their economic impacts. And we've come up with plans for how we would respond. And, Faced then with that challenge, we've, uh, you know, failed, arguably failed to execute on on any level on, the, you know, to protect human health in the ways that we should have to slow the spread of the virus or to, to protect our economy. Climate change is happening on a slower scale and a larger scale. It'll affect ultimately much greater numbers of, of people even but it's similarly well-defined. I mean, we now understand the basic trends of how the planet is changing. We understand what those inputs are and what changes we could make as humans to slow the spread of climate change, to follow the analogy. And we also understand the tools that we need to begin to use to adapt, retreating from coastlines, for example, uh, or just changing the way we live in threatened environments and adapting in terms of of human migration as well. Um, You know, we haven't really begun to do that effectively and what response to the pandemic shows us is that it's possible that we might not. The ripple effects of those inactions will be huge.
0: Thank you so much for talking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Abram Lustgarten is a senior reporter at ProPublica. His next piece will focus on climate migration within the United States. You'll be able to read that at ProPublica.org. That's our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Celeste Headley. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. A new episode of What Next will be in your feed on Monday.